The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week it's my great pleasure to be joined by Linda Laplante, one of our greatest living crime writers. Linda's latest book is Judas Horse. And Linda, tell me a bit to start with about Judas Horse, because in a way it sort of goes back or harks back to the very beginning of your career, doesn't it? Not really. Oh. Why do you say that? Well, because it's it's the dynasty of widows. No, that's buried. Doesn't this... Well, in a way, the lead character, the lead detective, yeah. has discovered that the father he never knew was uh, the notorious criminal, Harry Rawlins. But I keep that quite distant in the book. It's not relevant, only relevant, because he has shadows of his father inside him. Well, exactly. Sorry, I, I, it, it's not... Going right back to the plot, I just meant that it's it's sort of a crime dynasty in a sense. Or I mean, he's a he's a copper though, obviously. Yes, yes, I understand. Yeah. Can you tell when when you sort of set about doing Judas Horse, what is it that gets an idea going with you? Firstly, the title really had. I just loved the title Judas Horse, and when I found out what it meant. The you know wild mustangs are roped, and they go for the lead mustang. They rope him, take him back to the corral or the ranch, and then they train him, and then they release him, and he goes back into the herd, and will draw the entire herd following him back into the ranch. So he's known as the Judas horse, and I just loved that that, that expression. To me, it was very very powerful. And then the more I think about it, if you go back to the days of super grasses, I mean, the most infamous one was somebody called Bernie Smalls. And he was caught and questioned by the Met. And to save himself, he said, listen, I have information about robberies. I can give you names, dates, and I know what they're planning. So they let him go back into the gang. And they subsequently were all arrested and went to trial. And it's a very famous trial because there were eight men on trial and he was giving evidence against them. And they sang, we'll meet again, don't know where to... And it was a very frightening moment. But that was a super grass. And also, if you look at an informant, an informant is a form of a Judas that he will betray his gang members, a spy is like a Judas. And it is, to me, the ultimate betrayal. And so I use it when the character, the detective Jack War, is told about a Mustang that was at a farm in the Cotswolds. And the owner of the horse explains why he's called Judas Horse. And later he then realises that He's going to need a Judas horse 
somebody that has inside information in robberies to draw them out. And that's, you know, I, I still, every time I hear the name Judas Horse, it's very powerful to me. I really love it. It's got a fantastic kind of ring to it. I mean, that business of how informants work, how the police work, I'm curious, as someone who's written crime fiction and crime drama for many years, does it matter to you to get it sort of, as it were, real world right? I mean, you know, we're all entranced at the moment by Jed Mercurio and these three letter acronyms and, you know, line of duties kind of, you know, apparent verisimilitude. Do you research the police? Do you talk to police people about how it works or... Is it something you could just like in bags make up? Nothing, nothing leaves me without the police have absolutely ticked it. Forensic, everybody. It's very, very carefully researched. Nothing in any crime book I've ever written has not been passed by police and particularly forensic. I'm very keen on that. Because to me, I find it very difficult watching a lot of crime shows on TV because they are so untruthful and rather preposterous. So if you go to how do you research something like Judas Horse and what begins to tick the boxes? And for me, it was a slow process of me becoming fascinated by, for example, the Wimbledon Prowler. And this was just from newspapers reading how they caught the Wimbledon Prowler. And he got the name because he'd been actually prowling for 10 years. He would come into Wimbledon, rob two or three houses, disappear. He left no prints. He had to have known about CCTV cameras. He had to have known of which house he hit for the security cameras. And what was very terrifying was that he sometimes hit the same house twice. He left nothing, nothing. And the manpower to try and catch this prowler was absolutely extraordinary for such a long time. And when they actually did find him, he didn't live in Wimbledon at all. But he'd used often the, you know, big tennis tournaments there. You can actually go around with a tennis racket slung over your shoulder and do a survey of properties that you want to hit. They were all exclusive houses too. But the damage done by this prowler, some people never recover. It is an invasion of their lives, but to have it done not once, but twice. And he had the ability to be very, he would sometimes just remove keys, take them, make a set, replace them. And eventually, when they did find him, I mean, there was an awful lot of baggage that was never recovered. Never. Millions. And he was just a man who ran a fish and chip shop in Manchester. But he had this extraordinary ability. So that caught my interest. I then began to research, how do I find one of the police officers that were involved in that? And so then I meet them, and I get further details... And more and more, I began to think of the fact of drawing people into what it's like to hunt down a robber and hunt down. It's very difficult now. There are gangs that arrive from Chile. They are flown in and they're flown out. 
very, very um, professional, cold-blooded gangs. And when you target an area that I've chosen, like the Cotswolds, and, you know, I then get into a bit of a hot flush because I sat, open the paper and I read that there is a gang. This is after I've done months of work and research. There is a gang targeting the Cotswolds. And it's that feeling of the invasion of your life that I am not portraying, I never do actually, villains with glowing, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the catch them. That is really more my main interest. I don't go into details what a psychopath had for his breakfast. You know, that, I find that rather... And also the victims. You know, a, a major part of my work is showing victims, what happens to victims. So it's, uh, you're content for villains to be baddies, straightforwardly? Yeah, they usually are. <laughs> And that psychological aspect of it, you know, you have serial killers, you have whatever. To me, because I've had such major contacts with the police officers at everything and every level I've worked on, my admiration for the Metropolitan Police is tenfold. Are they easy to get to talk, police officers? Yes. This is why, you know, I don't understand when I'm watching something on the TV, a, a crime show, and you have a body brought in for an autopsy or a post-mortem, and the body's just arrived on the table, and suddenly you have a police officer saying, toxicology report's just come in. Well, that is a farce. You know, a toxicology report is going to take three to four weeks, probably even longer. And so the forensic side of crime is very, very important to me. And I have, at all times, had the most incredible scientists assisting me at every level. It is so fascinating, and now even more so, because as science advances, their ability in catching the criminal is, you know, if you, if you can see, if you're on your mobile phone, they can track where you've been, who you rang, and you have people trying to delete information. You can't delete any information. It's all there. Well, that's one of the things that I was curious to ask you about, because this is, you know, a novel in which, well, not, I hope, to put it in spoilers, you know, sort of you've got a Bitcoin trader in it. You know, you're, you, you're talking about some quite sophisticated modern technology involved in the investigation. You know, some crime writers I've heard complain that it's become much, much harder to write crime and detective stories because mobile phones and modern technology mean that, that a lot of the sort of traditional trickery and deceit becomes much harder. Do you sort of embrace it? I mean, do you think there's something to that? I think you just have to be a lot better at what you do. You know, that you use it, you learn about it, because it's so fascinating. And you have to use it within your plot, because otherwise... Uh, and what's interesting for me too is that because I'm writing the series of the young Jane Tennyson, so I'm going through the 70s, 80s, 90s. And so I'm working on novels where there is no DNA, there's no mobile phones. And you can see as it grows the advancement in DNA. And I remember one of the reasons I use split screens in Trial and Retribution, a TV series I produced and wrote, was because of my fascination watching forensic officers at work and watching 
for example, one of the technicians removing from a button sewn into a jacket that had one single hair caught and wound round. The length of time to ease that hair out and the excitement when he got the long blonde hair free and noticed that the bulb was at the end of it, which for evidence is, you know, very easily traceable uh, for DNA. And I thought then, you know, that is fascinating, but to put on screen for a long period of time, somebody teasing out one single hair was going to be a bit boring. That's when I used the split screens. So you could have a scene going on and you could watch that hair slowly being drawn out. So it, it's, for me, the fascination of the puzzle. And that's why I believe crime fiction is so popular because everyone really likes to fathom out the puzzle. Yeah, and of course you have to have to be one step ahead of the reader. That's your job, yeah. Yeah, Do you, are, are you someone who sort of follows your nose or you think this is where the twist's going to be, this is how it's going to end, this is who the villain is? Now, if you actually write the entire story out, it, does, it has its own twists. You know, I get infuriated and, you know, I throw so many crime novels into the trash bin because the audacity to suddenly in chapters, you know, towards the end, they bring up a suspect, you think, oh, for goodness sake, you know, it's the butler. It's that, that irritation to me, whereas actually if you play the game and start the puzzle, it is very entertaining to actually see the process of a crime and think, I know, can they get him? Will they get him or her? And that to me is terribly important. So you can have, you know, vast crime novels and suddenly in the last chapter they've caught somebody who has nothing to do with the plot whatsoever and it's rather boring and you think, oh, get out. That's cheating. Cheating, cheating. It's, you know, crime writing is an art form and to get it right, and if you have readers that see your name and say, oh, I want that because I like the way the story unfolds. So many times the story unfolds in the most preposterous levels. So this is why I cling to all my police contacts, because if they go, no, 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 that won't work, we'd never do that, then out it goes. If the forensic tells me it will take you months to get that result, then out it goes and I will work with them. And then eventually when I get that encouragement, they go, right, that's it. That's how we do it. Then I'm confident. And hopefully my biggest thing is making characters so interesting that you really want to read the characters as well as the storyline. Well, I, mean, I was going to ask you about that because this, you know, Judas Horse, as well as having the sort of exciting crime story in the foreground, it's got, you know, a hero who's dealing with family life as well. And a lot of crime fiction historically has been, you know, you've got a very isolated character, a very, you know, there's nothing to tie them to the ordinary world. Are you quite conscious of trying to push against that a bit? Yes, I get very tired of reading, you know, that every police officer has an alcohol problem or is divorced and is going through maritable situations that he can't really face. 
And I just wanted to, because of working so closely with so many police officers, I just wanted to show that, yeah, here's a guy, he has a very, very happy life and he adores his wife and it gives him a stability. So the complexity of his character is evolved in his own makeup, not with his background. Now, you mentioned Jane Tennyson. She's probably your most famous creation. She's 30 years old this I year. Know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years ago. It's hard to believe, really. But, you know, she became such an iconic character. And again, for me, you know, you create... I mean, I didn't actually think for one second I was creating an iconic female character. I had a DCI, a female DCI, who was on my shoulder going, no, 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 we don't do that. No, love, no, got that. And she taught me so much. And she was the one that said, have you been to an autopsy? Come on. And she used to sit me in incident rooms. She was quite extraordinary. So I got it right. What is very interesting is that when it went in to the TV company, they hated it. Really? They said, oh, no, no, yes, no. I mean, you've got her in one scene, Linda, she's touching the dead girl and the mortuary. So I said, yes, she's a police officer. No. And I remember the call when it came and they said, um, we've decided not to go with prime suspect. Well, we've got a wonderful script about cops in Spain. So very sorry. And, you know, and in those days, 30 years ago, they had a thing called Flexipool. So every commission script was put into a kind of pool for all the channels, the different channels, because they could get it cheap. And they may decide to do it or not do it. And so it was very disappointing. I'd worked so hard and for so many months. But you get used to that kind of rejection as a writer. And um, I got this call from Carnival Films. You see, everything is... It may be 30 years ago, but my God, I have an elephantine memory. And I go in to this meeting with this film producer and he said, we want you to write a movie for us. And I said, oh, really? Because a lot of people had wanted me to repeat Widows. You know, I mean, I kept being asked to make another woman series that, you know, they shoot up somebody or something. And so I said, Why? Why, why have you come to me? And he opened a drawer and he held up Prime Suspect. He said, don't you know about this? I said, well, how have you got it? He said, well, it's Flexipool and everybody wants it. I said, really? That's very interesting. I think it was the next day when I got the call to say, well, you know, we've made a, we've made a decision, didn't we? We are going to do it. Oh, are you? And it must have been because there were so many bites on it from everybody else. Granada then said, we're going to do it. And so you just have to go, oh, that's fantastic. Good, <laughs> good. And then, of course, you get to the casting. 
And you would not believe the character actresses they came up with. And that was the Try fight. Hmm? Try me. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't begin to tell you. And it was, I, I kept on saying, she has to be late 30s, early 40s. You can't get to a detective chief inspector at a young age of 20, 25, 30, whatever. And Helen Mirren, yes, but what TV has she done? You know, the fact that Helen Mirren was already an established stage actress and obviously had done a couple of films, but it, I needed that weight. And so eventually, we were very fortunate, we got Helen. And this was when I first really realised that the power of casting and the knowledge of the writer, which is often totally discarded. You know, we've got your script, thank you, you may go now. We will do the rest. And they called me to tell me that they had found the killer, who was called George Marlowe. And they were very, very excited. We have the killer. I said, hang on, hang on. And I used to have all the spotlights lined up on my desk. I said, what's his name? He gave me the name. And I flicked through. And, I, you know, I know actors. Because I was an actress for so long, I know actors. And if an actor says he's five foot seven, you know he's five foot five and wears lifts. Uh. So I said, look, look I, I have to come in. I have to come in. Do not cast him until I have come in and talked to you. So I got a taxi to Golden Square and ran. I was out of breath. So they're waiting and you could see the irritation with me. Yes, well, she's here. What do you want? I said, OK, if that actor can carry me over his arm down that corridor, then he can play the part. And they said, we don't understand. I said, that's how he moves the bodies. He puts them in a very upmarket dry cleaning bag and is strong enough to carry them through the street. Nobody looks at him. Oh, oh, we see. And so, you know, we eventually got the actor that was the right size and the right build that could do it. Uh, uh, when you, I mean... Obviously, carrying bodies in dry cleaning bags is one one skill for an actor in that role. But Helen Mirren is no, it's the weight, the weight. The weight yeah. If you if you can't suddenly say to a very short five foot five inch actor and say this is how he was moving the bodies, yeah, and make it believable. And I also inserted a scene, a very small scene which could be dismissed where the undercover police officers are working and they're on a surveillance of him. And one of them has got on the back of his T-shirt, Gold's Gym. And you can hear them saying, he's walking, he's heading straight for you. He's heading, he's coming straight for you. And he stops and he talks to the undercover officer and he goes, you go to that gym? And he goes, yeah, I do. He said, what weight are you doing? And he talks about the weights he's lifting. And it's like, this was a character, an actor. And you have to get that actor to understand that your main job in this entire series is to make me like you and to make me believe in you and your innocence. 
and you have one second where you show the horror of you inside you, the animal inside you. That's all you've got, one second, where you let go. And he said, okay, because talking and meeting serial killers, they're the most <coughs> affable. You can, you know, hello, Linda, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I've interviewed some of the worst people imaginable. And I then used me as an actress. You know, I can chat away. I don't. The horror, what they've done. You know, I can't show it. Just learning, watching, watching all the time. How much did your career as an actor kind of... How, do, how does it bear or feed into what you do as a writer? Well, for one, the acting career, you know, as an actress, truthfully, if, if you're still getting scripts that are so thumb-marked on offer, you know you're not going to get the cream anymore. And I'd reached that point as an actress, you know, anything Felicity Kendall turned down, I was eventually offered. And it was like, you know, I was never going to get anywhere, really. And because I was such an experienced actress, you know, I'd done Whitehall Farce, I'd done National Theatre, Royal Shakespeare Company, I'd toured, I'd done repertory. There wasn't anything. I'd even done stand-up comedy. As I said, and, you were in Rent-A-Ghost, which... Yes, Rent-A-Ghost. I mean, that Rent-A-Ghost, oh, Linda, do this, it'll only be a short, you know, a bit of a short, you know, but half an hour, you know, you know you're finished. It's just earn the money, take the money and go, it's haunted me. I could be giving a lecture at Oxford or Cambridge <laughs> and then when it opens up to the Q&A, some prat at the back will put his hand up and say, well, you're in Rent-A-Ghost. I go, yes. <laughs> But, but that's, you know, as an actress, you have to virtually do everything to survive financially. But the moment with Widows, I changed. I'd played a prostitute in Zedcars. I'd played, I'd been more hookers in more TV shows than you can imagine. In fact, when uh, Melvin Bragg did the show with me, they clipped together all my performances in various cop shows, from the Sweeney, you name it. And I was constantly falling out of doorways, going, hello, love, you come in my way. <laughs> you know, I was one hooker after another. And I felt that I was doing an incredibly good job, really. And then, when I was writing Widows, I needed to get one of the characters. And I went to some of the streets where the street girls hang out. And I met them and talked to them. And I knew that the gloss performance I'd given, there's an underbelly to them all, all of the women I met. And that dawning was how I continued digging deeper and deeper into widows, the characters, the, the women, the killers, the gangland members. And... The moment came when Verity Lambert, who is quite one of the most brilliant editors, brilliant, her script notes were just superb. And eventually the scripts were in and she said to me, so, Linda, what part do you want to play? I'd even written a character called Linda and I thought, I'm not going to let this one go. And at that moment... 
When she said that, I knew I'd written myself out. I wasn't right for one part. And I said, I'm not right for anything. And the relief, <laughs> see the relief in her face. And that was the end. I, I never acted again. You know, it was da, 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 da. never acted again. Because writing fulfilled every single inch of me, whereas acting didn't. Yeah. That business, I mean, it's interesting you point out that in, in all the time you were acting on cop shows, you know, you were often playing prostitutes. There's a, a lot of thought now. People say, you know, women in crime fiction and in crime drama are very often there as picturesque corpses. Was that something you were conscious of, you know, as you started writing and wanting to kind of redress that? No, I wasn't conscious of it. I became aware. And even, you know, recently, well, not that recently, but I had a victim murdered. And um, I carefully wrote that the police officers, when they were called out to the site, saw only her hand and that she had a, a knee-length boot on, high boot. And it was on the officer's face, and it was in the script, that I said, he just says, she's very young. You didn't see the corpse. You didn't see the half-naked body. You saw nothing. You saw his reaction to the youth of the victim. When the director gets hold of it, he's got a girl on the ground in pouring rain for hours. I went ballistic. You know, why are you doing this? Why? And that is, to me, what happens with TV. You lose your voice when you give it to a director. And I found working as a producer and writer, I could control it. You know, I could actually say, no, 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 we don't do that, no. As soon as you give away your script to a company, then you lose, it's again, uh, the body's on, how many times have I seen a naked young woman on, you know, for the uh, post-mortem? It's unnecessary. It's absolutely unnecessary. And again, in the same TV thing, there she was, you know. And I just find it, the titillation disgusts me, actually. It is unnecessary. And it also takes away from the pain. Because in reality, you never just have the scientists, the reviewing the body. You've got, you know, lighting technicians, you've got sound men, you've got crew, you've got cameras. And I do feel so many of our young actresses are totally and utterly abused. If you were to actually say to them, do you know you're doing a virtually pornographic film? Is that what you set out to be an actress to do? And you often hear the young actors saying, oh, I don't mind being nude. I don't mind it. Well, fine. I think it's an invasion and a lack of parental and agent's control. No, you've got to have an agent to say, no, she doesn't do that. 
because it's expected almost. And I hate it. Constantly in everything I write, I am aware of the victim because I don't just research crime and I don't just research the killers and the villains and the police. I also talk to the victims and the wounding of victims' families never ceases. There is no closure. It's heartbreaking. And also the other area I don't want to touch on because I did it once, and that is child murder. You never, ever lose that pain. But nor do the police, you know. I talked to police officers who were on a child murder, and 10 years later, you see that emotion well up in them. You can feel it. And when you talk to the parents, the breakage is so close to the top all the time. And I think because we have access now to so many true crime programs, I find it very difficult from watching true crime programs to going back to seeing, you know, a new crime show. Well, the, the vocabularies are often the same, aren't they? I mean, there's that bleeding over from that the true crime is presented in the same sort of titillating, exciting way as fictional crime. It's different. It's very, very different. There's a different tone to it. Because they're talking to the real victims. They're talking to the families. It could be 10 years later, 15 years later. What did it feel like when the police knocked on your door? And so you're actually talking to the mother, the sister, the father the officers retired 10 years ago. Watch them go, watch the emotion rise up in them and fall in them. And I think, therefore, when you're writing crime novels, as I'm doing, you have to lift up an area in it so that it doesn't go into that darkness too readily. You lift them up so that they're going pace to pace with you for the discovery of the culprit. Because if you, the darkness affects you very deeply. Well, I, f I find for me, I'm affected by, my heart breaks for victims. And I think they are maligned. You know, you can get, well, an example. What, what an example is Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley giving guitar lessons. Myra Hindley giving therapy. Myra Hindley being able to talk publicly about her pain. What about the victim's mother who used to search that more for her dead child? And Ian Brady, you know, I... And there's never enough for victims. Only in the last 10 years have we got family liaison officers who are trained to sit with the family through the hunt. You know, they are with them. Your daughter's missing and they're there beside them. But they have to go not long after their loved ones are found. You know, and that is never goes away. And so that line, we want to give closure, there is no closure. Your heart breaks till you die.
You said that this, you know, when you're writing a script, and to, unless you're the producer, you know, you're giving it away to the director. I'm curious to get, because you're someone who seems to be sort of ambidextrous in writing prose fiction and drama. Do you have, I mean, is the process different for you? Do you feel more comfortable in one than the other? Or is it an idea will say this is going to be telly or this is going to be a novel? It's a very different process. I mean, if you take away the fact that if you're writing a script, you will have 20, 30 fingers all over it. If you're writing a novel, it's all yours. So as an example for the difference in writing for as or this is for TV or even movies, you're actually restricted to a budget. In a novel, you're not. You can have helicopters, you can have 20 police cars, you can have 50 police. But if you're on a script and a budget, they go, no, you can have two and a half cars, that's it. And I remember doing one in my series Trial and Retribution, and I had this drug dealer getting away in a plane. You know, we sit down with the budget and go, no, no way can we get a plane. You know, there's no possibility. You can't have a plane. And in the novel of it, he got away with a plane and his two children. And then I remembered an editor I knew had a private plane. <laughs> and I went and this groveling creature, could we borrow your plane just for half a day shooting? So we got the plane. Then you have, you know, social services and everybody. Oh, no, no, you can't have the two children in the plane. You've got to have a teenager. So that meant a complete rewrite that he didn't have two young children. He just had a teenage boy. Because, and so you, you have to adhere to a lot of rules when you're script writing. And I'm sure a lot of people say, no, well, I never stick to the rules. But if you're producing it as well as writing it, the budget sticks in your head very heavily and you still come across major problems. I remember in one scene, there was a shooting and it was terribly important that the blood splattering after this shooting showed a distinct outline behind the victim. So they knew that whoever was standing behind him had to be very tall, over six feet. And so everything's going according to plan. And I go to the set where they're shooting this scene. And guess what colour the wall is behind the shooting? Bright red. <laughs> and so you, you go, who painted that wall? Who's this? And you're in a director goes, well, actually, it was my idea. And you want to go... <laughs> so you have to concentrate on... Everything. But that's, you know, I mean, I'm not, that's not really showing you the difference between writing a script and writing a novel. The novel is your baby, you know, it's all yours. But a script, a lot of people come and get put their 10 cents in. Yeah. Now, actually, I, I know that Irvin Welsh always said that he wrote his character Begbie as this big, hulking, you know, six foot something, bald headed, tough guy and he was played in the movie obviously by Robert Carlyle he played him as a little tough scrappy guy <laughs> and Irvin said he actually ceased to be able to see Begbie as he'd originally conceived him because Robert Carlyle so thoroughly put his imprint on the character did that happen with you and Helen Mirren doing Jane Tennyson no she she was there 
Helen Mirren has a very rare quality as an actress. She has weight. You can see she's very, very strong weight to Helen. And she was very open to working with the policewoman that had helped me throughout the process. And, you know, I could tell her, don't lift your voice up. Don't fold your arms. Small, tiny things that I'd picked up watching them in the incident room. And she was like a, you know, she was extraordinary. She seemed to know instinctively what to do. And none of us realised what would be the outcome of Prime Suspect. None of us knew that. And again, I did not ever consider the character becoming an alcoholic. By the time I walked away from Prime Suspect, and I'm not in any way, you know, knocking any of the writers that took over, they were all exceedingly good and very professional. But I personally, having created that character, would never have made her an alcoholic. She would have been Cressida Dix. She would have been up there because she was so powerful. And, you know, it's, it's that constant thing about you do get it slightly in novels and you might have somebody, could we have a subplot? I go, oh, bugger off, I'm not giving a subplot. What do you want a subplot for? The main plot is the most important. But, you know, th th it's, it's like you even watch Morse, you know, old episode, and Morse has to somehow have a sexual frisson with one or other woman in every single Morse. And it's like... I just find it quite extraordinary that once you get a big dominant actor, they want to dominate the screen. They want more private life. They want this. Where in actual fact, the original prime suspect was watching this woman at work. And it led me to meet so many wonderful women from the Met Police. I mean, constantly, constant. You know, I, I am... I've enjoyed incredible friendships with policewomen. And it was actually originally used by the Met to encourage women to join. Do you, you seem to be obviously a considerable fan of the Met. Yes, how did totally. You, how did you respond to the whole row over Sarah Everard and the policing of protest about violence against women? I don't think the truth about that has come out yet. I think there were people who had such peace and in good intentions, and it was taken over. And I, I do feel, after Bristol, after that tragic girl's death, who would want to be a policewoman? Who would want to be a police officer? You're spat out, kicked. Who'd want to join the police? You don't know what to do. You have a f young female spitting in your face. What do you do? I really don't know, and I don't think the truth of that has come out yet, what happened. It was just a very, very big tragic event that took place. And then hot on the heels is the Bristol riot, which they are now proving to be taken over by various different parties. And it's very, very sad. And, and truthfully, it was a very shocking event that happened. 
or you can't really call it an event, but there were people who wanted to just lay flowers and say she was just walking home. But the reality is, I don't think there is a woman who hasn't felt that danger at some point in her life, over and over again. And I used to give a lot of lectures, um, you know, warning teenagers, if you go out late at night, you get the last tube home, make sure somebody's waiting for you at the tube station to, to get you home safe. Because tube stations are notorious at night, the dark, dark car parks. And then you see awful footage of groups of very young teenage girls absolutely drunk out of their minds, vomiting up on the pavement. And it, you've got to constantly say, what do you want the police to do? I don't think we have a kinder, more emotionally compassionate police. And you, you've got to have some kind of ulterior safeguard. But then you say, who safeguards all these young boys that have been knifed to death? It's every other weekend. Somebody's knifed, somebody's son, somebody's brother. And I think we have a major, very frightening time for young people. The frustration, and you can't blame everything on the pandemic. We have a, I mean, I have a young, I have a teenage son. And over and over again, it's what do you do? And I don't know. I don't know. How do you create a peace? I don't know. I really don't know. And then in America, you have the shootings. Yeah. Well, it's... Um, I think we're just about out of time. So I, allow me to say, Lynn LaPlante, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. And Thank you. We'll look forward to whatever comes after the Judas horse ah. when it comes. The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin.